You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Guys, all of your questions coming in already. It's 25 minutes to uh, 3 o'clock. So let's get straight into it because, Chris, I understand we've got to let you go early because you've got a big date with the needle. Good afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go and get uh, another dose of coronavirus vaccine. So that will hopefully see me on the way to being immune to this pestilence for as long as it takes it to vary itself anyway. But yes, two o'clock is the big time. Two o'clock UK time is the big time for for me today. Haven't had a single one and here you are going for a second. So... (laughs) Well, I'm just greedy like yeah. that. But um, no, I mean, it's part of the government rollout to sort of prioritise frontline healthcare workers because obviously there's no point in having people who mm. are supposed to be providing a healthcare service if they can't come to work because they're c- catching coronavirus or, um, or are laid low by coronavirus and then passing it on to patients. And so that was, that was part of the aim by the government to try to, to protect the health service by preventing the people who are staff members from having to take time off um, because of ill health or, or because of exposure. Because the other problem we've had in, in this country is that members of staff were coming into contact with people who then turned out to have coronavirus infection and they were having to self-isolate for a couple of weeks. And that meant that then they were off work and they couldn't provide a service. And we ended up compromising our ability to do mm-hmm. healthcare. And so by prioritizing people who are involved in patient care, patient management, it means that we can keep the health service running as optimally as possible. Absolutely. So with that, let's go straight to the lines because there are some COVID-related questions coming in. 11 uh, for your questions, for your conversations with the Naked Scientists, that's Dr. Chris Smith. Nilio, you're calling us from St. Churian this afternoon and you've got a question for Chris. Hi. Hi there. I'm um, Chris. I'm just uh, wanting to get your perspective on um, some findings this weekend on MOONS and G-2 and what the impact will be on the physics standard model and what it will mean for physics moving forwards. What's your view on that? Ah, yeah, well, this was a big story last week, but it unfortunately got somewhat eclipsed by AstraZeneca vaccine shenanigans Mm. and then the unfortunate passing away of the Duke of Edinburgh, which meant that many of the normal sort of news headlines that probably would have made much more fanfare about this were shelved. But the story relates to experiments conducted in both America, but also at the Large Hadron Collider in CERN, which have been looking at these uh, subatomic particles called muons. Muons, nothing to do with cats, Mm -hmm. it's M-U-O-N-S, are a form of heavy electron. They're about 200 times heavier than an electron, the negatively charged particle that spins around the outsides of atoms. And what the researchers in America were doing was sending... Uh, packets of these muons around a circle guided by electromagnetic forces. And if our understanding of the rules of physics and the four forces that we regard as the four fundamental forces, the electromagnetic force, gravity, and both the strong and the weak nuclear forces, if that were the whole story, then the muons should have followed a certain pattern and wiggled in a certain way as they went around this circular trajectory. In fact, when they made the measurements, they were not following the anticipated path, suggesting that something which we hadn't taken into account in our modelling was exerting a force on these particles under those circumstances, arguing that there may be a fifth force that we previously haven't taken into account. At the same time, researchers at CERN, Geneva, have been colliding these particles and um, you know, various particles at high energies 
and producing something called a beauty quark. And a beauty quark decays or splits apart into what should be equal numbers of electrons and muons. But it doesn't. You end up with more of one than the other. Mm -hmm. Again, suggesting that something is pushing or unbalancing the equation in favour of one outcome over another. Suggesting that when we think about our understanding of how the universe works, the rules of physics and the particles that both make up the universe and the matter in the universe and the forces that are conveyed in the universe, perhaps there's a missing part of the puzzle that we hadn't appreciated. There's a gap. And now we can begin to constrain what that gap is and try to understand what is causing it. And if we understand that, perhaps it will help us to answer other big questions that remain mysteries about the universe, such as, for example, this notional concept of dark energy. When we look at the universe, we can see it is getting bigger. As it gets bigger, some force must be pushing it apart. We're calling that dark energy. And the more of that uh, universe we make, the faster it seems to push itself apart. So what's causing that? How does it work? Could dark energy be also related in some way to this perhaps missing force which is causing the muons to wobble in an unpredictable way. So that's why this is an exciting story. Mm. It's, it's a potentially a big step forward in the unknowns of physics, giving us a new target to aim at and a new piece of understanding or lacking knowledge that we can now aim to try to uncover. Yes, something undiscovered. Um, let's go to Nilio. Back to you, Nilio. Um, there you go. You wanted to get Chris's perspective. You must be excited too. Uh, extremely excited, especially on what the impact will be on physics moving forward and the physics textbook. Um, will or do you think it will change the physics textbook uh, rather radically, or is there still quite a lot of research to be done in the space? Well, all of these things initially begin with an observation. And one is always very cautious indeed when you first make these observations to check them, check them, and then check them again. But also check from a range of different angles and test them in a range of different ways. You don't just test something once. You test it in a range of different ways. You use it to make predictions, and then you design experiments that will test whether your prediction holds up. And if what you think is happening really is happening, then it should fulfill your predictions and then you can add confidence. But physics isn't so much about answers, it's about narrowing the unknowns. It's about asking the right question, forming a hypothesis, and then narrowing the, the distance between the unknowns down to smaller and smaller amounts. But it, it always takes a while before people have the confidence to say, and now we can rewrite the textbooks, because that's a very bold step to take. Mm. And it's very early days for these observations. So they'll need much more corroboration and further collaboration between researchers all over the world to, to test these things and try to understand what it is they're seeing, if anything. Yeah, fascinating, because um, even some of the pieces, just the human interest stories, they say that the scientists were saying, uh, was, what's going on? You know, when the results first started coming out, was the experiment wrong or is the theory incomplete? And as you say, they had to retest to make sure that the results they were That's seeing right. were the, the real the thing. The potential to look really very silly is very high indeed. Because <laughs> if, you, if you cast your mind back a few years, researchers in Italy thought that they had something traveling faster than the speed of light. They, they thought that they were seeing neutrinos travel faster than light speed. They were initially baffled. 
and and then quite excited. But then they discovered they had a broken connection in their experiment. Ooh. Whoops, and that accounted for it. But it shows you 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 make the um, observation. You say this doesn't quite fit. Now we have to explore all the possibilities and make sure we haven't got a dodgy wire or a mistake in our calculations. And when we're pretty sure, then we start uh, sharing that information and asking other people to independently corroborate it. Which is why. Both the Americans are looking at this from one angle, the CERN people from another. And you also then look for new new ways to test it independently. A similar sort of thing has happened with Einstein, if you think about it. When Einstein's theory of uh, relativity, general relativity, was published, it made a whole bunch of predictions about how the universe would behave. Some were tested quite promptly, for example, the transit of Venus, where you had Arthur Eddington who travelled to, to take pictures of gravitational lensing and proved what Einstein appeared to be saying. But we've seen subsequent proofs in more recent years, for example, with gravitational waves being detected in and, and winning a Nobel Prize within the last five years. So, in other words, it, you, know, you make these predictions, but then you, you make independent observations and test hypotheses to see if they may or may not be right. And that's what we're now going to have to do with this. Hmm. Nilio, thank you for kicking us off. Fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That's Nilio in Centurion, 2021, the year of the muons. Let's go to Keith in Ethel. Hello, Keith. Hi, Zanya, Dr. Chris. Hi. Um, I'm trying to understand the methodology and rationale behind the COVID testing in the UK. Um, the, the UK does an average of around 800,000 tests a day and about 380,000 vaccinations. If you look at the, the daily, new daily cases, it which is roughly 2,500. It seems that a lot of active testing is occurring where you're going out to look for infected people. So my question is, considering the large number of daily vaccinations and, and low new case numbers, why is the UK conducting so many tests? Are you trying to flush out asymptomatic and mildly infected people who can then be quarantined to reduce the transmission of COVID? Or are you testing people who have been vaccinated to determine the efficacy of the vaccines? Or is there another reason behind these large test numbers? Hmm. There are several things going on. One of them is an organisation called the Office for National Statistics. And they are running an independent testing process where they go out and test at massive scale, as in tens of thousands of, of household scale, people without any symptoms they just randomly test them. And the idea by doing this across the country at massive scale is to get a real insight into how many cases of coronavirus are really there in the country. Because by taking a sample which is big and it's broad, it's representative of the full geography and the full diversity of the population, not just people who are seeking out a test, you have as close to the ground, ear to the ground insight into what the reality is as you can get. So that's one set of tests that are being done, and that's what's informing really the trend in terms of, of where we are with the infection and, as you point out, how many asymptomatic infections we've got. At the same time, there is the government's testing system where people who have symptoms and have a number of criteria, do they have a fever, do they have a new persistent cough, 
do they have abrupt onset of loss of smell and taste? Those are the cardinal features. If you have those, you go and get a test. That's the PCR test. And, and that's very much led by symptoms because if people don't have any symptoms, they won't be getting one of those. The idea of that is symptomatic testing. People find out whether or not they've got coronavirus infection when they've got those features. If they have, they don't go to work. They, they don't go and um, meet other people. They isolate themselves. They hopefully therefore break the chain of transmission. A new thing which started last week it's going by the code name Operation Moonshot, and this is an eye-wateringly expensive initiative, which is going to cost something in the order of a hundred billion pounds, mm. and they will be distributing to anyone who wants them two lateral flow tests a week, so that adults across the country can test themselves. The aim being that this picks up the asymptomatic cases in the population and enables people to get forward warning that they may have coronavirus infection and can then isolate themselves. This though I, I think is less valid than the previous initiatives I outlined and I'm less supportive of it. The reason being A, it's, it's I think very expensive for what it returns mm. and what it returns is probably going to miss half of all the diagnoses. These tests, in even very good hands, are not very good, and at least the tests we're using, and they will miss half of all positives. That's bad enough when you are in a situation where you really can't afford to miss positives, but it's made doubly worse by the fact that when the amount of virus in the community drops to a really low level, and we're getting there now because of the combined influence of both the vaccine, but also summer is coming, we're just coming out of lockdowns and things in, in the fairest nations of the United Kingdom, which has driven caseloads right down. This means that now false positives become much more of a headache. The tests don't make many false positives. They make about one in a thousand false positive errors which means if you test a million people though there's going to be a thousand people who think they've got coronavirus when they haven't mm. they're not testing a million they're talking about testing many millions every week so the number of false positives as a proportion of all the positives when you've got very rare cases of the virus in the community like we will have this summer will actually mean you're calling lots of people positive and causing them disruption to their life when they haven't got coronavirus right. and turning it around the other way if we want to do what the Netherlands did recently and they tested this idea which is we want to have festivals and mass gatherings and things and one way to do that we'll just test everybody before they go in the test they're going to use will be these lateral flow tests well if they miss half of cases say you have a big festival like Glastonbury or something then instead of say having 20 or 30 cases of COVID who come in you might have 15 well, 15 people who are highly infectious can still cause quite a lot of outbreaks. So driving 30 down to 15 is not a massive return on your investment. So I don't think this is as valid a policy as uh, right. just offering people symptomatic testing, but also the ONS tests that uh, enable us to test quickly um, what the word on the street is. So a mixture of blessings here, I think, is the summary. Mm. Keith, thank you so much. Great question. Thank you very much. Thank uh, you. a lot. Thank you. Thank you. And you got some as well, some extra pasela. Let's go to Rodney in Mayerton. Hello, Rodney. Yes, good afternoon. Good afternoon. This is Rodney from Mayerton. And mm -hmm. um, after listening to all that, I'm not going to text your brain too much now. <laughs> I'm, I'm asking <laughs> the fact that, that somebody that cannot play any instrument whatsoever, maybe can't even sing a song and hold a note, yet they can whistle 
and obtain any key note that required for a song to be repeated. When I say a song, I mean musical. How is that practical if you can't sing or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, yet you can whistle absolutely perfectly? Are you a good whistler, Rodney? Pardon? Are you a good whistler? Yes. Yes, I'm a pretty good listener. Give us a sample. Give us a sample. Yeah, you know, Rodney, it's it's um, you know, it's it's red rag to a bull when you phone up a live radio program and yeah. you say to a presenter <laughs> like, as a, I'm a good whistler, and uh, and in I a minute she'll make you sing too. a song to show that you're a bad singer as well. <laughs> so so pick your poison, Rodney. Are you going to sing or are you going to whistle before we take Chris's explanation? <laughs> No, you wouldn't. Now you've caught me so much. I'm so embarrassed for my simple little question of the listen to all the technology that you And you were trying to hide. You're trying to be quick about this. <laughs> well, I'll let you go. But Rodney, stay in and listen to the response from Chris. I'm not a bad whistler either. That's not bad. That's all right. There'll be every dog and cat in Johannesburg is now oh. making a beeline towards... So is there a correlation? Um, I think really the answer is that um, if you think about what singing is, it's the coordination of enormous numbers of muscle groups and flow of of air. And also uh, it makes a lot of noise. And so people tend to be a bit bit self-conscious about doing it. And everyone's anatomy is different. So everyone sounds different. And so as a result, I think whistling tends to be something that you can do more quietly. It's a bit more socially acceptable. Actually, it's, it's a more limited palette of sounds that you can make, so it's harder to get it wrong. And there are probably fewer muscles involved that need to be coordinated in getting it right. Not that many, because it's still pretty complicated. You've got to get your lips in the right place, your tongue in the right place, the breath has got to flow at the right rate, and you've got to change the shape of your mouth in order to amplify different notes or frequencies so that the whistling sounds right. And I think it comes down to practice, really. And I would say that people who are good whistlers, probably if they put the same effort, endeavor, and lack of self-consciousness into singing, they probably could sing quite well, actually. Uh, if you can whistle, I- I'm, I'm with the questioner. I think that uh, the chances are you probably could be taught to sing quite well. So with that mouth cavity, are we hearing it in the same way? As you say, we do contort yeah, the mouth cavity are. differently. And we're hearing yeah. sound even from inside. Yeah, the way that singing and speech and anything else works is that you have a flow of air coming up from your lungs and you control that flow of air rather like a bellows on a bagpipes by how you squeeze the muscles around your chest. As it comes up to your throat, you can open and close your vocal cords at a certain rate. And what that does is it delivers pulses of air and those pulses are vibrations because if you open and close a flow of air, you you get pushes through that will create vibrations of a whole range of different frequencies or you know notes in other words but when that sound gets into your mouth because you can change the shape of your mouth by moving your tongue around moving your cheek muscles moving your lips you therefore change the shape of the cavity in other words the echo chamber that is your mouth and different frequencies will be amplified better in different shaped cavities than others. So if you make a very big cavity, you amplify lower notes better. If you make a short cavity, mm-hmm. you amplify smaller, you know, higher notes better. And that's why organ pipes, when you have really big, long organ pipes, you get low notes and short pipes make high notes. And it's exactly the same thing with your mouth. And when you whistle, you are basically creating sound waves in your mouth and amplifying them. And then the sounds come out from your head and from your mouth 
and into the air around you and it's just pulses of sound so speaking and whistling are not actually that different mm. so robert wants to know after rodney's call he says that begs the question why are dogs particularly responsive to whistling probably the penetration of the whistle and the range of frequencies we tend to whistle with fairly high frequencies because of the shape that we adopt with our mouth to make a whistle that higher frequency probably is less drowned out by other ambient noise travels quite well and the dogs can pick it up and the dog's hearing is quite sensitive to those particular sounds so rather than getting confused by decoding complicated sounds in speech they're hearing one pure sound that they've tuned in to listen to and so they can respond to it Yes, just like we promised, Chris, uh, I can't take any more questions and they keep coming in, uh, but we'll pick it up again next week, Monday, because you've got to go off and get your second uh, coronavirus jab. Yeah, I'll let you know how I get on. Yes, yes. Well, you survived <laughs> the first one. <laughs> I'm sure well, I did, fine. yeah. So in theory, no I, I'm in a survival group, aren't I? So I should be absolutely fine. <laughs> absolutely. Thank you so much, Chris. All, All the right. best. Take care. Bye-bye.